Christmas, uh, Christmas break, and uh, uh, we saw the opening for the opportunity. I'm amazed at how many weddings. They said, well, why would you get married in the dead of winter? Well, it was Christmas break. Why not get married? And I don't have to go to class the next day after the, after the wedding. And there are a lot of marriages that take place right at this uh, little section of the, <clears throat> of the calendar. Well, uh, have you made your uh, New Year's resolution yet? I, uh, <clears throat> I haven't, but I've looked at several this week. And I marvel at how many of them have to do with diet, how many people are promising themselves uh, to do better when it comes to eating health, healthy uh, foods this coming year. Uh, one of the best ones I heard was a fellow said, uh, my New Year's resolution is to lose 10 pounds. I have 15 to go. <clears throat> well, looking ahead to the new year, we're going to do that in a moment. But first, I want to do something that the Apostle Paul has done for us in the third chapter of the book of uh, <clears throat> Philippians. He takes a look back. He takes a look in. He takes a look around. And he takes a look ahead. And uh, we're going to do that with him. But I want to begin with a um, kind of a story, actually. I'm not going to take you through the whole book. It's a very, very famous book written by Charles Dickens, a book entitled A Tale of Two Cities, a tale of a city in England and a tale about a city in France. And it's a powerful book, and it opens with some absolutely powerful lines. I want to read them for you. This is the opening of his book. They're pretty famous lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. The Tale of Two Cities is a story. It's a love story. It's also a story of revenge and of hatred and fate. It's a story set amid the French Revolution. But I think he's open with some lines that might be fitting for our time and for even this very moment. And so Paul, first of all, looks back. In Philippians 3, verse 4, he looks back, he says, If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, a very strict um, sect of Judaism, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Pretty strong language here, the Apostle Paul brings as he looks back. His accomplishments, he was an Israelite by birth, by right of circumcision. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of beautiful Rachel, and the only one of those 12 sons born actually in Israel. The rest were born way up north. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he had Hebrew parents. He spoke and wrote the Hebrew language. He was not a Hellenized Greek. He was a Pharisee that, as I said, was the strictest group in um, the Jewish sects, zeal persecuting Christ and the heretics 
he believed that were following Jesus beyond his fellows. In other words, he claimed he was doing a more effective elimination of Christians than anyone else. And as for the law, faultless in obedience, in customs, and in culture. Some pretty strong claims. There is a period in German history that I want to refer to as a watershed moment in the history of Germany that so powerfully illustrates what I'm talking about here this morning. There was a, first of all, uh, a period in Germany that uh, was somewhat begun by, the, <clears throat> by a man named Johannes Gutenberg. He invented the printing press. Now, that was not nearly so significant as the first thing he printed. The first thing that rolled off Gutenberg's press was a copy of the Bible. It came into the hands of a little German monk by the name of Martin Luther. He read it. It revolutionized Germany. It set about the uh, Reformation movement. And out of this period of German history, when Germany was filling its cathedrals, it was bowing in loyalty and servitude for God Almighty come some of the greatest names of art and literature and science and medicine and philosophy. Johann Sebastian Bach, music Ludwig von Beethoven, Johannes Gutenberg, Walter Schumann, Johann Goethe, Felix Mendelssohn, Hans Holbeins, the artists, her finest hour, art, literature, music, philosophy, when she was worshiping God. There was another period of German history to follow that. It was initiated, I might say, by a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was an atheist, and he was the one who said, God is dead. Modern science has made it impossible for us to continue believing in a metaphysical God. God, he said, is dead. And uh, he talked about the madman in the marketplace who went into the marketplace looking for God. I seek God, I seek God. And they made fun of him. They said, why, you're crazy. Uh, He said, no, no, I'm not. God is dead. You have killed him, you and I. And how shall we find a festival of atonement for this horrible deed that we have committed? And then Nietzsche said that man went out into uh, cathedrals and sang the Requiem Eternum Deo, the eternal goodbye to God. And then he said, what are the churches but the tombs and the sepulchers of God? That was a period when Germany became atheistic. That philosophy came into the hands of another German by the name of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. And out of that period of Germany come some of the names and places that forever will live in infamy. Not just the name of Adolf Hitler, but Adolf Eichmann, Heinrich Heinrich Himmler, Martin Burman, Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, the concentration camps of Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Malthausen, Dachau, Treblinka, names that forever shall live in infamy come out of that period of Germany when she no longer paid obedience to God Almighty. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And I don't know an example, a huge example of a whole nation 
that exhibits what happens when she worships and honors the morality of the Judeo-Christian faith and when she doesn't. <clears throat> this last year, I just took a quick look over this last year of some of the memorable events. And um, we have read this last year of how sexual misconduct scandals have rocked the broadcasting media, rocked government politics, even rocked Hollywood. Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. We had the terrible drought out on the West Coast where much of our food is produced. The terrible, terrible forest fires that robbed us of hundreds of thousands of acres of forest land. More mass shootings, Daytona, <clears throat> Dayton, Ohio, El Paso, Texas, and San Antonio. Car bombings and suicide bombs. I read how every single month, somewhere in the world, was a mass murder, a mass shooting, a car bombing, a suicidal bomb. Notre Dame, the great cathedral in Paris, burned. It caught our attention, even here in America. Scientists photographed a black hole out in space for the very first time. Need I say anything more than impeachment? Yuck. Authorities claim that July was the hottest month in temperatures ever. But frankly, I'm not sure that uh, <clears throat> it is the best argument for global warming. July's hot month. George Santayana said those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. I remember so often in school, issues came up over the years, and I could look back and I could say, we've had to deal with that before. That isn't new. And the philosophy came to my mind, the more it changes, the more it is the same. All that we could learn from history. Well, next, the Apostle Paul looks in. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Well, what do you find yourself this morning when you look in? Our best efforts, like Paul, are made to please God, but our best efforts are worthless. Oh, we want to please him. Well, what about our culture? What about America, for example? Our cities, our, you know, I think our towering skyscrapers are our greatest art forms today. The huge cities, computers, iPads, cell phones, the knowledge explosion, all have significantly impact on human relationships, affected our culture, changed our society. Space conquests, travel to Jupiter, landing on Mars, Saturn's moon, Psychiatry with new psychotropic meds, breakthroughs in the treatment of schizophrenia and diabetes and Alzheimer's, advances in 
medicine as a result of breaking the DNA code. We have conquered many of the scourges of humanity, but one we haven't, death. A while back I sat down. I must have been feeling pretty bad because I sat down and I went back over my own life to to sum up my accomplishments. What I felt that I had personally accomplished, significant things in my life, and I have that all typed up here, um, my interests, uh, my opportunities of service, and so on and on and on. Accomplishments. There are some religions that teach this is the way you buy yourself and your way into paradise. It's the way you get to heaven. You buy your way in. Not in the Judeo-Christian religion. Just like Paul, I sum it all up, and it's garbage. The best I have done? Worthless? Yes, because salvation is by grace. It is a gift of God, and I cannot earn it. I can work my fingers to the bone, but I cannot earn it. I cannot lift up my little finger in so much as to effect my own salvation It comes by my surrender to Jesus Christ, by my proclamation that he is a Messiah. He's come from God. He's divine, but he walked on this planet. He ascended ascended and is coronated and at the right hand of God. And if I subject myself to his lordship, I'm saved. I have the promise of salvation. When I look in, that's what I find, and that's what I discount. Paul looked around. Well, as he looked around, what did he see? For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do we have any of those today in trying to do what we're trying to do here? Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly earthly things. Enemies of the cross. God is their appetite. Sensual satisfaction. I have a friend, actually, who was a former student. He became uh, a minister, and I I actually preached his ordination. His name is Bill Redman. Bill Redman ran for a congressional office out in New Mexico, and he won. And he had an office in the Senate office building in Washington, D.C. And I have uh, had opportunity with many of our students many times to go to Washington, D.C. in January to engage in the March for Life. I went up to Bill's, uh, Bill's office, and um, <clears throat> he had his diploma sitting there from our seminary, and next to his diploma, he had a towel and a basin that we give to our graduates when they graduate from our seminary, a towel and a basin symbolic of this is what you're sent out to do to serve. And um, as I was walking with Bill, from the Senate office building down to the White House to begin our march. I said, Bill, what's it like being a Christian politician here in Washington, D.C.? He said, Tom, these people around here think they are in Athens, but they're really in Rome. What a commentary. 
Athens, Greece was the center of intel- it was the capital of intellectual learning. Rome was the capital of sensual sin. Here was a Christian politician downtown, a few feet from the Capitol building of our nation, and he says, these people think they're in Athens, but they're really in Rome. Judge Bork wrote a book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, The Decline of America, where he describes moral decay, which spells, he says, American doom. We have two different kinds of writings today. One is called utopian, and the other is called dystopian. Utopian writing is optimistic writing. We have a glorious future ahead. Look at the stock market. Everything is getting better and better every day in every way. Then we have the dystopians. Oh, no, it's doomed. The planet only has days or maybe years, and it's going to be a goner. George Orwell's 1984 was dystopian. He said... going to be impacted by total war and total control by government. Huxley's Brave New World. H.G. Wells wrote six novels on utopian future. Everything's going to get better in every way. The book of Revelation. How would you consider the New Testament? Dystopian or utopian? Here in the book of Revelation, we have terrible, terrible disease and famine and war and pestilence rain down upon our culture. But who wins? How does it turn out? Every one of those sections, the pouring out of vials and the blast of trumpets and, <clears throat> and all, all sorts of terrible, terrible pestilence. And at the end, every one of them ends with the end of the world. But that's not dystopian, because Revelation gives hope, regardless of Iran, the Taliban, ISIS, Russia, North Korea, nuclear holocaust. God has the last word. Revelation says emphatically, God Almighty will have the last word. The outcome, we don't look at the world the way the rest of the world looks at itself, it looks around, and it sees dystopian. We look around, and we see utopian. Regardless of what's going on in the world, we can look up with hope and promise. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then Paul looks ahead. What does he see when he looks ahead into the new year as we are looking now? But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win a prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He is going to make everything new, is what Laura put in our bulletin. Look at that. That's a beautiful statement in our bulletin. He makes everything new. According to Stephen Hawking, the brilliant physicist and mathematician, in discussing the new year ahead, well, he said, we have a hundred years until doomsday. This is Stephen Hawking. 
Climate change and overdue asteroid strikes and epidemics and population explosions are to blame for the new century-long doomsday clock, he calls it. Magazines and TV will look ahead this week. You'll see it. You'll hear it. TV will be replete with looking ahead, predictions in economics and politics. But Christians, as I said, don't look at the world the same way others do. In Revelation, there is turmoil and persecution, but they are no deterrent to God's plan. He declares victory. Revelation 26, the second death has no power over them. Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades, the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 4, there will be no more death or mourning. What amazes me as I read the New Testament is the fact that death never hung around Jesus very long. Bring him death, Jairus, and he brings life. Bring him death, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, and he brings life. He dies on a cross, and in three days, he brought life. Death never hung around Jesus very long. That is a glorious, glorious promise ahead. Now picture Paul's eyes as we look at this text. His eyes are on nothing else than the goal. His arms are clawing the air. His head is bent forward. His body is angled toward the finish line. He's headed flat out to the finish line. I'm going to read for you here what one comment... Whoops, don't I have that? Oh, I thought I had that. I'll read it for you. I have it here. This is a beautiful statement of Paul's last outlook in 2 Timothy, when he says, I have run the race, I've kept the faith. Paul's last words, 2 Timothy 4, this is the last utterance of this truly remarkable man in whose character and commanding ability, simple and unswerving purpose, unflagging energy and unselfish enthusiasm, and warm and wide and sunny sympathy were combined in a degree unrivaled in the history of our race. He's an old man, but age lacks no power as this warrior looks with calm and lofty confidence into the eyes of death. He was alone as never before, and he summons his Timothy to his side for his final hour. The churches he loved were far away, once a source of strength. Now he would never see them again. The old places are gone. No more would he see the holy city so rich in its memories. No more the long blue line of Lebanon mountains that guarded the memories of his people. Gone are the jagged hills of his native Tarsus. No more the dancing waters of the blue Aegean, nor the lofty crests of Acrocorinth. Nature has closed her doors to this wandering pilgrim. In his prison cell in chains, hidden far from the Roman civic center, He closed his eyes and opened them to the Roman summer sun, eyes which strained beyond human affection to unimagined wonders of a lofty world soon to be his. I expect myself, when I stand at death's door, I expect to be able, like the Apostle Paul, to look ahead, to look up, and to see 
what the Apostle Paul saw in that moment. So it's a message of hope amid a world <clears throat> that we could, could be described by some as the best of times and by others as the worst of times. But for Christians, it's only the foreshadowing of the best of times. That's what we lay claim to as Christians. It uh, <clears throat> gives a richness to our message that many people who haven't heard need to hear. And that's our job, to take it where it has not gone, to woo people back and to woo them into the kingdom to join our family. It's the mission message of this church, this congregation. And we need to pray together that we as one body accomplish that. If you're not a member of the body of Christ, you need to be. There is only one name under heaven whereby you can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. We've sung about it, we've worshipped, we've prayed, and now it's opportunity to say, I'm going to be his regardless of what's going on in my world. I'm his. Shall we stand together as we sing? <clears throat>